to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined once again by Professor Russell James, Director of Graduate Studies in Charitable Financial Planning and the CH Foundation Chair in Personal Financial Planning at Texas Tech University. Russell, thanks for coming back. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, for those that haven't heard uh, our first Next in Nonprofits episode with Professor James, there's a, a wonderful and well-used uh, episode about uh, changes in, in 2018 around tax law that, that I think scared a lot of nonprofit folks around what does it mean for charitable deductions, some great advice about ideas like uh, bundling gifts and, and thinking about how to still encourage people to take advantage of deductibility when that's an important thing. But today have asked Russell back to talk a little bit about a new series of books that you've uh, just released, the Fundraising Myth and Science series. Uh, Russell, I've got a lot of specific questions, but I want to just start with um, why the decision to try and create a series of books that go over the fundraising and information you've learned in all these years in those four um, subject areas. Sure. Well, you know, Steve, this was a project that started with a, with a simple idea. I wanted to take a look at all of the experimental research uh, that had been done that investigated uh, charitable giving, uh, financial sharing, uh, empathy, uh, all of these sort of factors that are relevant for fundraisers, uh, and to uh, summarize it in a way that is useful uh, from practical day-to-day -day fundraising. Uh, and uh, I thought it might be a six-month project. It turned into a five-year project. There <laughs> has been lots of experimental research that's been done. We're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of experiments. And so I, I realized early on that it wasn't going to be helpful for me to simply just do a laundry list of, you know, here are uh, 1,200 or 1,800 different experiments, and here's each one of them and uh, describing uh, what they found and how that may or may not be relevant. Instead, what we needed to have was an underlying framework that could help explain uh, the bulk of all of these results and, and how those could be useful to fundraisers. So, so that was the basic idea, and it wasn't an intent to uh, write a series. It, it was an intent to simply answer this question and provide something useful. But over the course of those five years, then uh, this uh, led to more and more different approaches and aspects uh, and describing those ended up being this fundraising myth and science book series. And I particularly am interested in the science, as you said, all of the experimentation, what we've learned about it so far, some of this still being, I think, a little bit of an art uh, in every individual, because there's no, I think, single scientific uh, research that has uncovered every possible scenario of what might motivate a, a donor to be concerned with a charity, what might uh, be ringing with them. But you did break it into, you know, kind of four segmented ways of thinking about there's a lot of myths on some of these topics, but there's some science behind these. The Storytelling Fundraiser is your first book, The Epic Fundraiser is book two, Primal Fundraiser book three, and then The Socratic Fundraiser on four. Um, within each of those, there's some really interesting content. But uh, as you were thinking about this very broad uh, question of, you know, why and how do people make decisions on giving? What's, what's the, the science behind that and what myths are kind of standing in our way? Um, how did the framework come to you to break it into those areas? I'm, I'm particularly loving the, the Socratic framework personally, uh, and I want to get to that. But storytelling, I think, is one that's a little bit more common that people may have heard of as a practical technique. But how do you come to epic and primal and Socratic as ways of grouping thinking on this? 
So the idea is this, there are a lot of different academic, theoretical, uh, personality approaches to this topic of fundraising, of how do we encourage generosity? Uh, and ultimately, the uh, premise of this book series is that you can pick your favorite flavor and you're going to come out in ultimately the same place. So, for example, the, the first book, The Storytelling Fundraiser, that focuses on uh, the brain, neuroimaging uh, research, behavioral economics, that kind of experiment, uh, and uh, ultimately comes up with the uh, importance of, of story. Uh, the, the second one uh, doesn't take that approach. It instead uh, kind of dives deep into uh, myth and psychology and the universal hero story, uh, what's been called the monomyth from some research uh, uh, by uh, Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung, uh, and understanding how that story and those story elements, when applied to the donor's hero story, uh, can be uh, dramatically influential uh, and can actually lead to transformational lifetime investment type gifts. Now, the third book is more of the, and now for something completely different, <laughs> it takes the perspective of game theory and the natural origins of effective fundraising. And it starts with this idea of why do humans share with each other, right? Why does giving even exist in what is supposed to be this, uh, you know, this uh, survival of the fittest kind of a, of a scenario? Well, it turns out that game theory, even within that context of survival of the fittest, can tell us a lot about the natural origins of why we share and why we uh, are generous uh, in certain conditions and certain circumstances. And as it turns out, those particular circumstances and conditions that affect the uh, game theory outcomes well, they also give us some guidance for what works and what doesn't work in real world modern fundraising practice. So again, we're using a very different perspective, but ultimately it's coming up with many of the same approaches, many of the same answers. And then the fourth book, that's for folks that don't love theory as much as I do, and they just want to know how do I have a conversation with the donor that's going to lead to a gift? <laughs> and that involves many times asking questions of the donor mm -hmm. and questions that actually complete those same story cycle elements that we talk about in the storytelling fundraiser, the epic fundraiser, and even the primal fundraiser. And this is the idea of specifically what questions do we ask that can help the donor progress uh, through that process. And so that one is the, uh, it's the practical, I've got a meeting tomorrow, what do I do? Uh, with hundreds and hundreds of uh, very uh, specific questions uh, and the sequence in which you can choose to uh, ask those questions and how those ultimately uh, can lead to these major transformational gifts. Yeah, and I have so many thoughts on each one of these after looking through your materials that I'm just like, oh, goodness, we have, you know, a 45 minute conversation and there's so much here. Uh, first of all, I should um, say that um, I first heard about this because we were connected from our last conversation following you on LinkedIn and you'd offered to make electronic copies of this available. And in fact, there's an audio version um, of these books available on YouTube that people can access without um, any cost. Uh, is that 
generally available to people? Is there another process for how they can get a hold of the books? Yeah, so I'm trying to share the digital and the audiobook uh, as widely as I can. If folks want to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, then uh, I can share it with them that way. Um, if you type in Russell James Plan Giving on YouTube, you'll find my channel uh, there. The audiobook version, uh, the extended version, is there. Uh, um, uh, you can get to it that way. Um, you can email me um, however you want to get to it. If you go on Amazon and you want to kill some trees, you do have to pay for that one. <laughs> but uh, I'm happy to uh, share the digital and audiobook copies for free for anyone who has interest. Uh, you know, frankly, I'm a professor, I'm a researcher. And if the stuff just sits on my shelf, it doesn't have any impact or do any good. I'm trying to get it to people who are actually out there changing the world uh, to help them uh, in their efforts to encourage generosity with the donors that they're working with. Well, and demonstrating some generosity along the way, because there are certainly many other people who uh, are, you know, have tenured faculty positions in places, they have some security, they're, they're paid to do that research, and they still, you know, charge for their books. And it's not, you know, a horrible thing that happens in the world. But it's very nice when you've made a decision that um, you still want this to be as broadly distributed within the fundraising community, who are maybe not the, you know, best purchasers of uh, materials in the world, and make it available to them um, at no cost through those channels anyway, again, noting that if they'd like a paper copy, you can get a paper copy if that's the way that it's easier for you to absorb information. Sure. Um, but thank you for demonstrating some generosity within the field and saying you spent a lot of time working on this and you're not you know, seeking to make a lot of money on the um, publishing end of this, but rather to just share some important ideas. So uh, sure, acknowledging sure, that, and we will have links in the show notes uh, for how people can get in touch with you and take a look right. at this directly on YouTube. Because um, I do encourage everybody. Um, the uh, Each book is a number of pages, but each page is kind of um, very accessible. It's not going to be a, uh, a, a big slog of uh, a book to get through. It really is pretty compelling and a lot of good information, but accessibly laid out and understandable. And I, I think it uh, should be thought of as, yeah, maybe you've got a meeting tomorrow and you want to look at that Socratic idea, um, but probably you've got some time over lunch and uh, a break here and there and whatnot that you could really get through and stimulate some super interesting ideas for how you can do your work. So that said, let me back up to the, the first book as you um, looked at that storytelling fundraising idea that that uh, is something I think has been widely talked about in the field for a while, but I really appreciate your sort of science background of um, how people respond to the idea of um, empathy for the person in the story here, that it isn't just look at this outsider who um, has some great need. Um, maybe they brought it upon themselves, but would you like to throw some money at them? That that doesn't ring with people, that that story has to really make a, a connection. And that empathy piece is a part of the, the science that you talk about in what makes storytelling more effective. Uh, this, I think, is something that I've heard a little bit about, but you've got some great information and citations in your book. Has this been something that has been core in your work or did you learn more about it as you decided to do this particular piece? Yeah, so the reality of storytelling is that this is something that uh, early in my career uh, as a researcher, um, after I spent a number of years in actual uh, you know, uh, frontline fundraising and major gifts and planned gifts, uh, 
look, as a researcher, I was a data analyst guy, right? I, I was only about numbers, but these results kept coming back to the, the power and importance of a story. And ultimately, we're talking about very specific story elements. And so the, the, the specific story elements are, are really just a three-word a circular sequence. And, and those three words are uh, identity, challenge, and victory. And so what I mean by that is that first, the donor's identity, that comes from their people, their values, or their life story, needs to connect to the challenge. Uh, that is the fundraising ask, the, the cause, the organization, uh, or the specific project. So that uh, that identity needs to connect to the challenge, but then the challenge also needs to promise a victory. There needs to be a result from the gift that creates a, a victory, and ultimately that victory needs to link back to the donor's identity. Now, this might be private. In other words, the victory needs to be personally meaningful for the donor, Again, connecting back to their values, uh, their people, or their life story. Or in some cases, it can be public. That is enhancing uh, the donor's uh, reputation uh, because they have made this gift, which, uh, which wins this victory. So those three simple words uh, and that cycle that sequences through those words uh, kept coming up again and again as we look at these uh, as these at these different stories and story elements that actually will drive the charitable giving. So, so to come back to your point, the idea of sharing a story, it actually starts with the identity of the person who is reading or listening to the story. And so what I mean by that is any book that you pick up, it's gotta have a character that you can identify with. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that means in some way they are like you. Uh, if you can't identify with the character at all, if you know they don't, they don't share anything uh, of your values, they don't share anything uh, of your uh, of your people or your life story. There's no connections at all. It, it's just not going to be an interesting story. You're not going to continue that story. Well, the same is true when it comes to uh, fundraising and charitable giving. That it is, uh, it has got to be about a person that we can have empathy for. And that empathy begins with identification uh, with that story character. And there's some very specific things in this first book, uh, tactically, that you've studied that uh, kind of help flesh that out. Uh, one of the things I noted was the um, the idea that if you uh, give somebody uh, both a first and a last name as you're talking about your program work in the world, um, that that really impacts a donor much more because they're identifying with that as a person rather than just, yeah, we help people of this you know need in our community versus Steve Boland needed some help. And here's where Steve's story comes in. And you can just that alone, when you get people a, a first and a last name, allows them to connect more to who that person may be and makes that that empathy connection a little bit more possible than if it's not you know defined uh, specifically even though it may be the same story in the same circumstances and whatnot but just personalizing it that way seems to be the um the element of a story that makes that empathy connection a little bit more possible 
Exactly. So really the idea is we want to help the donor create a visual image that evokes social emotion. So there's a couple of ways that that can break apart. Number one, if what we are communicating is not creating a visual image, um, then it's going to be really hard to generate any sort of empathy. So, so I can give you spreadsheets and numbers, and if it doesn't create a visual story image, um, I'm going to I'm going to have a really hard time motivating you to give. And, and second, that image needs to be one that triggers social emotion, triggers some sort of empathy. Uh, and so, you know, if I if I create a really clear image about a really unsympathetic character, well, that's not going to work either. Mm -hmm. uh, and so fundamentally, we want to create this uh, vision. We want to create, and, and when I say that, I mean specifically uh, in the brain, creating this internal visualization. Uh, and uh, that is what makes the story something that can become compelling if that image that we are creating is one uh, that elicits uh, empathy or social emotion. Yeah, I, I think there's many other examples of that in the book where, you know, here's a specific idea of how you can make that happen using something like this. Uh, um, all props out for the Star Trek references, by the way, because, you know, I'm a fan, so it's nice to see those kinds of ways of talking the needs of the uh, uh, the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. But in this case, we really can talk about how the one is important and really how that does matter. So those are, are outstanding things to take a look at. As you were talking about that, though, it does sort of bring up ideas about this, the, the epic story. Uh, and I'm wondering if we may kind of move into some of the thoughts that you had in that book, because we have three other books to talk about, and we're already kind of moving through our time together. Uh, the, 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 the notion, I think, of kind of this donor-centric thing is... Um, the subject of some conversation in the field right now about whether community-centric fundraising, donor-centric messaging, how that works. But as you talk about the hero's journey and, and that epicness uh, of it, how do you see that playing out? And especially in this conversation out there about what is community-centric, what is donor-centric, and what really actually has some science behind it? Sure. Well, you know, some of the things to keep in mind when we're talking about advancing the donor's hero story, we're talking about a very specific kind of giving, and that is what you might call a major transformational lifetime investment gifts. So what we find in research, and this is really important, is that it's not always the case that the sort of thing that triggers these um, small social compliance, quick decisions to make uh, small gifts, those aren't necessarily the same things that will trigger these major transformational lifetime investment gifts. Uh, and so that's just to say that um, that oftentimes these are two different animals. Mm. Uh, and so if we want to talk about what can trigger a lot of people uh, to do a very small amount of uh, contributing. That's sort of one question. Uh, the other question is what can motivate an individual 
to make a major lifetime investment gift. And, and major here means major relative to their resources. Uh, and, and so I think in many cases, these are two different kinds of animals. Uh, and if you say, hey, I know fundraising because I know how to get $20 gifts um, from people in a mass solicitation. Um, that is great and that is true, but it is not the same animal as uh, I know how to get people to make a major investment of their lifetime savings uh, in, a, uh, in a, a charitable project. Uh, and so I guess I would just divide the two things and say they're not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. uh, you certainly can go after one where we care about the number of people participating in the other where we're focused on uh, more individual uh, individuals and making these sort of relatively massive gifts, uh, major investment gifts. And if we want to do that, that's where the donor's hero story uh, is that compelling journey that can lead to these kinds of, uh, of transformational gifts. Um, you know, now having said that, I, I'd already mentioned that there is this three-step cycle that keeps sequencing where you start with original identity, you then link that to the challenge, the challenge then leads to a victory, and the victory ultimately then links back to an enhanced identity. That sequence is actually a summary of the universal hero story or uh, the monomyth as uh, Joseph Campbell called it. Um, so, so these elements don't go away. They actually just become more specific and in some ways more extreme when we're talking about the donor's uh, hero journey uh, in making their gift. I've, I appreciate that clarity. It's, I do think that there's still that question of um, the the science of what has really worked so far versus I think some in the field feeling like, well, maybe that works, but maybe we should try to be shifting that conversation anyway. And um, I don't know that we're, that we have information and the same to back up uh, that theory of, you know, you shouldn't be necessarily trying to talk about the, uh, the more um, journey of the donor versus the community mm -hmm. need kind of thing. And I think, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't are very, you know, judgmental kinds of words here, but I, I do think that there's a ongoing conversation among fundraisers about how that conversation is approached. And I, I want to understand, I think a little bit more about um, what do we know of what actually has been working, whether or not it should, or whether there should be a different way to do it. Uh, but this, this way does seem to connect to those folks um, at that moment when they might be able to, and you, you talk about this in the other book too, uh, about um, uh, gifts of wealth, not gifts of disposable income, where, where you're talking about that accumulation of resources that are not necessarily being used today for their needs, but could be that bigger, more transformational gift that you're describing, that that just seems to be something that by necessity requires more of their participation in the story and not just as an observer of it. Right. And, and let me say that I think it is a perfectly valid approach to say we should use a particular fundraising methodology uh, because of its ethical content, regardless of the result that it will ultimately defund our causes. That's a perfectly appropriate uh, approach to take, uh, as long as we recognize this is 
a, a valid trade-off to make, and we're very comfortable making that trade-off. Um, so uh, I have no problem at all with, uh, with taking that approach. Uh, that is more of a, um, a subjective, what you might call a normative approach mm-hmm. uh, as to how we ought to be doing these things. And I think that's, that's perfectly valid to make that kind of a uh, values-based judgment. What I'm trying to present is um, a bit more of the objective, uh, here are the things that ultimately work to trigger these sort of outcomes. And if you want to use it, great. If you choose not to use it for any variety of reasons, um, then then that's a valid choice uh, as well. Um, But I think it is helpful to know, hey, these are the kinds of things that can lead to these major transformational gifts as opposed to um, what you might call participation gifts, uh, Mm -hmm. where we just want to be part of the crowd. Uh, And so, you know, here we're not trying to win a victory so much as we're trying to win a participation trophy. uh, (laughs) And that's going to uh, lead to a different level of a com- of commitment, a different level of uh, of behavior when it comes to uh, individual uh, donors' gifts. Uh, and in fact, there you know there there are core story elements around that character of the uh, the everyman worker community character that can motivate uh, giving, but it doesn't motivate that major transformational focused giving on a very specific uh, project or organization, it instead tends to motivate the doing a little bit of good in a lot of different places, um, which is all absolutely fine if that's what you want the donor to do. But if you want the donor to make that laser-focused major gift of lifetime investment, that, that transformational gift, then that's a different story. Good. I, I appreciate you going into that. That's, I think, helpful to consider all of those ideas that um, that that impact on that transformational gift and having that conversation is good. And I don't know that it necessarily means that there isn't a community-centric conversation being had, even though there's this um, theme of uh, this uh, epic journey that that this person is a part of, and not necessarily that they're you know not in community. And these other people that are in community have needs, and we'll we'll we're going to center them. But I too am a member of this community, which is a way to transition, I think, into this primal fundraising and this game theory conversation, because as we get into the the third level of the, oh gosh, I'm going to get it wrong. I was going to say Russian nesting doll, but you've got the real word for it in your book, the matryoshka? Uh, matryoshka doll. Matryoshka, right. pardon me for the forgetting the actual name of those dolls. But um, as we get into that third uh, doll within the doll, within the doll here of um, this, this primal element, um, it does get a little bit more into that conversation of, all right, if we are all in community together, um, what does motivate somebody to make that decision where another decision may end up with them being financially better off or something? somehow in, in a stronger position. Um, and, but the, the ultimate choice that is better for everyone may be that we all do pretty well rather than, you know, you one person getting out here and doing extremely well, getting that thinking in and, and kind of diving into that level of why do people make those 
decisions if we're supposed to be these self-centered, uh, you know, um, organisms that are just responding to stimuli. Um, we're, we're, we're maybe a little that, but we're maybe more than that. And, and how does game theory help us think about that next level? So you start with the idea of observing where we see uh, what we might call philanthropic behavior in the natural world. Uh, and so it turns out that this kind of uh, behavior, beginning with the concept of mutualisms, where, where uh, uh, different uh, uh, animals or even insects can, can share, um, and then moving towards environments where you've got a community of insects or animals that will do things that will benefit each other. Uh, even though on an individual level, it appears at least within the context of that specific transaction that they're just benefiting somebody else. And, you know, how, how does that benefit their own genes? And, and so what we find is that when you get into the game theory of it, as, as we kind of broaden the notion of what does survival of the fittest mean and how that, in fact, if we're focused on passing along genes, that somebody who is in my same community is likely to share a number of those same genes. And so it can be very advantageous for me <laughs> from a natural selection perspective to benefit uh, that other person. However, that environment that encourages sharing uh, is not a universal environment. It, it, it depends on various circumstances. So it depends upon things uh, that we might call uh, relationship. Well, in game theory, the relationship has to do with uh, the number of future reciprocal interactions that I might have. Uh, and that, that number actually goes up dramatically if someone is a member of my community, uh, if they can observe me uh, behaving generously, and if they will uh, or are likely to in turn uh, reciprocate that when, when I have need for, for their generosity. And so really that third book is in essence saying that, hey, this community fundraising concept, it has natural origins. Now, it, in another sense, we have to keep in mind that the natural origins of giving still have to do with a giving process or experience that delivers value to the donors. And that's something that's very foreign to a lot of charity managers. The idea that we're supposed to deliver value to donors, that, that the donor's experience is supposed to be worth the gift, that's kind of crazy talk, right? The donors are supposed to exist to deliver values to, to, to us as the nonprofit managers, not the other way around. But what we see from game theory is, no, these things actually are important, that we need to create environments of mutual sharing where I receive some benefits from my association uh, with the nonprofit, uh, even if those benefits are just uh, relationships that I can develop with the nonprofit and with other individuals who also uh, support the nonprofit. So, uh, so that's a little bit about how the game theory uh, can ultimately connect with very practical day-to-day -day approaches on how we might want to uh, uh, approach fundraising.
All right. And you talk in that book more about uh, separating out what feels like transactional um, uh, experiences where, um, you know, in terms of everybody benefiting that you were mentioning a moment ago, you don't want them to feel like they're benefiting in the way of, you know, I went to a local technology store and bought a new TV. Well, I gave them money and I got a TV. Of course, I got a TV. I gave them money for that specific thing. This is different from uh, I'm buying, you know, this charitable experience, but rather I'm engaged in all of us community, you know, kind of improving together and I get benefit out of that, although it's not the same kind of transactional benefit, right? I, I, I mean, if I'm summarizing some of what you wrote correctly, is that a way to talk about it? Right. So think of it this way. The benefit that you get from charitable giving uh, in the context of this game theory is a signaling benefit you are signaling to other people that you are a good partner, that you are trustworthy, that you have some resources, that you're willing to share those resources in order to support the values that they believe in. All of these things make you a good partner for future mutual cooperative endeavors. And this is not just a matter of theory. I mean, we actually see this in experiments that when people will in an experiment need to pick someone in their group uh, to be a leader or pick someone in their group that, that can engage in a mutually financially beneficial activity, uh, they will tend to pick the person who has been the most generous in a uh, previous uh, experiment. Uh, so, so this is really affects how, how people behave. And, and ultimately, it explains why corporations, which are supposed to be just sort of soulless profit maximizing entities, well, they engage in a lot of charitable giving. Now, it's very public right. charitable giving, but there is real value in having that public reputation of being someone who supports a particular set of values, who is, uh, who is someone that you can rely on uh, for these kinds of, uh, of uh, mutual endeavors. So there can be real value there, even economic financial value. But once we make it transactional, it destroys all of the value. Because at that point now, you're no longer generous. You're no longer sending a signal that you are a good partner. You're just showing that, oh, no, I only do things that are to my advantage. Uh, and so that's why those transactional language, that uh, transactional mentality, it tends to destroy generosity because you've destroyed the signal value of the giving. Yeah. Um, and we could talk a lot more about that, but we are starting to run very low on time. And I really do want to talk about the Socratic fundraiser because it is probably one of my favorite pieces of what you've written here. The This idea, the old saw of if you uh, want money, ask for advice, but if you want advice, ask for money, um, I think is really important in what are we doing with these people if we're just saying, you know, please give money. Uh, here's how you can do it. Uh, you can transact online this way. You can send a check this way. Uh, I, I think we're not engaging that donor in things that are important or interesting to them. Um, and you said this may be the 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 book uh, at the beginning that is a little bit more 
if you got to go meet with a large donor tomorrow, here's some ways of thinking about how to engage them through questions, through the Socratic method. Um, did you find that research was uh, easier to comb through or was that kind of, you know, for me, seeing some of that information kind of in the book was a little bit newer that way, although I've heard the ideas before. Sure. So this is really taking the things that uh, seasoned, effective professional fundraisers have used to great effect for many years and breaking down why it works and exactly how we can get it to, to work. And, and ultimately, it comes back to the power of questions. And, and whether we're asking those one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, or in terms of a face-to-face -face conversation or, or Zoom or phone conversation, or if we're asking them one-to-many, uh, such as in a uh, focus group or in a donor survey, these are all the same concepts related to the power of questions. And the key concept here is that we're not just asking questions to have a conversation or have open-ended questions or uh, establish a, a, a relationship, although those are all good things. We're actually asking questions with a very specific purpose, and it is that same purpose where we want to help the donor progress through those steps of how their identity, their uh, people, their values, their life story connects in with a potential challenge. In other words, how it connects with the cause or the organization or the particular project. And then how the victory or outcome that can be won by their uh, gift or that project connects back with their identity, how it is meaningful to them or how it connects with the, how they want to be a scene. Uh, and so there's a whole variety of questions to do this. You can start with the first step by asking very open-ended questions such as, uh, you know, how did you first get involved with this uh, cause? Um, you know, what led you to, to make your uh, first gift? Uh, trying to elicit life story elements uh, uh, when you first got uh, connected with the uh, organization or uh, trying to elicit uh, connections with uh, other people. Are, are there other uh, family members who also cared about this cause? Um, are you connected with uh, any of our uh, employees at the organization here? Uh, or maybe it's just life story. You know, if it's university, tell me about your time uh, at the university. Who is your favorite professor? What was your uh, favorite place on campus? Well, these are all ways where we can connect the donor's life story or their values or their people in with the cause, the charity, or the project. Then the second step, we need to help the donor define their ideal victory. So for example, what is the most meaningful thing you could do with your money? Uh, or if money were no object, what would you change about this organization? Or what would you change about the world? Mm -hmm. These are conversations we can have where ultimately we're trying to help the donor define a meaningful victory to them because that's the kind of story that's going to be compelling to that donor. Now, as we're going through these questions where we're eliciting their uh, connections to the cause or the project, we're then also eliciting their ideal uh, victory. We are, as the guiding sage, we're thinking about 
okay, who do they need to get connected with? What projects that we're involved with would they be particularly excited about? Um, what are some particular strategies that I can uh, use that would present the most compelling challenge for the donor now that I understand a little bit about their identity connections yeah. with the cause, the organization, and what they see as a meaningful victory? You know, when we talk about the Socratic method more broadly applied, it, you know, it uh, is always good to go back to remember that, right, there was an, an end lesson in mind when the questions start, you know, that we are trying to get here, but it is very different to get here as you discover it yourself by answering these things that you did know, and you're making connections because somebody is guiding you on that path uh, to see those connections to getting through. And I think that's a, an important element of this, but you also kind of talk about that advantage of, um, you know, we, we're asking for your advice here because we, we do have an idea, but we want you engaged in this um, uh, part of it. So we want you to tell us how you think it could go. And of course, in, in some instances, you do get really good different ideas that come to the table in addition to people who are now more invested uh, in making the gift. But even if their idea is just sort of reinforcing where you were going anyway, and you can just help them see that, uh, it, it becomes something that is theirs to own and rather than yours to give them, right? Absolutely. And in fact, what we find from experimental research is, number one, questions work better than, than telling. So asking works better than telling. So, for example, in experiments, uh, you randomly assign people to either be told about specific causes or, in some cases, specific projects or other people who are instead asked questions about what's most important to them among these different uh, projects or what's, uh, what's most important to them among these uh, different causes. And it turns out that the second group of people, they are dramatically more willing to make a gift, even to include a gift in a will. And beyond that, other experimental research shows that the more often you can get someone to state an opinion, the more strongly that opinion uh, is held and the more likely the person is to act in accordance with the opinion. So this isn't just a fact-finding process for the fundraiser. Uh, it is a process where you want the donor to go through this process. You want to elicit uh, the information from the donor uh, for what they will experience in that process. Even if you already know where you're ultimately trying to get, or uh, maybe you already uh, know some of these pieces of, of information, it can still be really powerful. I love the quote that says, you know, if you tell the donor something, that's opinion. If they tell you that same thing, it's fact. Mm. And so we have to ask the question so that they can tell us the facts. Right. Even if we have led them to those facts rather intentionally, but you know, you, you can't always just control a conversation through the right questions, but I do think that you can help lead to that space. And you've got to, um, I, I think in that process, be ready to um, adapt where you're ready to go in that conversation based on how they are responding to those questions. It's not, I don't think, uh, possible to immediately force somebody to a specific conclusion, but I do think, you know, it may mean that you take a couple of meetings with them over time, uh, rather than getting everything accomplished in one fell swoop in order to have them give you the fact of the matter. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that we not force them to a specific conclusion. Yeah. 
we're actually really there as a guide to help them take this journey, to help them understand what kind of a philanthropic victory is meaningful to you? What, what is compelling to you? Um, you know, what, why is this cause uh, connected to those sources of identity? Uh, and so you do have to be very flexible. Uh, and, uh, you know, that may mean that what they really care about isn't the next project that you really wanted to talk about. And, and that's okay because we're here for the long-term for that major lifetime investment gift. And that's got to come from what the donor sees as being that core value uh, that defines their victory, that defines their identity connections uh, with the cause or the organization. And there's so much more in each of these books than we really even had time to scratch the surface on today. And I really do appreciate uh, the the level of citation because there really is more that if you are wanting to go into a, a specific element, it, it's really well documented through the whole book of, you know, look, look here, there, there's more information. These studies are available. You can see them. And I think it's very helpful to think in that context, but begin by reading the books, listening to them on YouTube, however is the way that you can access the information that works right for you, buy a paper copy if that's the thing that is the, the way that works for you to learn more about these things. Um, but I really appreciate the framework you put around all four of these books and the, um, the, the time and energy to coordinate all of that research and information together. Um, it's just outstanding stuff. Uh, Russell, before we wrap up, any, any last thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Well, thanks, Steve. I really appreciate it. And the other thing I would say, look, if you're not ready to commit to all the time it takes to read a book, actually, each of these chapters is written so that it can be independently read. So just kind of, you know, download the things, flip through the chapters. If one of those titles looks interesting to you, you can bounce right to that. It's, tr it's written in such a way uh, that um, if you just want to pick and choose, uh, feel free and engage with it that way. Outstanding. So we'll have the links in the show notes and, you know, follow Russell James on all of the, uh, you know, I use LinkedIn, but whatever other ways are the right way to stay in touch uh, with Russell's work. Uh, I, I think it's just great to know that you've been doing this and look forward to kind of hearing what's next. Uh, Russell James is the Director of Graduate Studies at, and ch in Charitable Financial Planning and the CH Foundation Chair in Personal Financial Planning at Texas Tech University. Russell, thank you again for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Steve.